0: you know, we just finished this four-week sermon series on marriage, and we're going to dive back into the life of David. But just to kind of cleanse the palate, just for kicks and giggles, I thought for this Sunday, I would just preach on a story that I love and have loved since I was a child. And that's the story of Daniel in the lion's den. One of the things I love to do as a preacher is I love to preach through larger sections of Scripture. Like, I like to take a whole book and work through them. The other thing I love to do is to go to those stories in the Old Testament especially, some of those great Sunday school stories, and revisit them. And this, uh, my love for this kind of thing is, was born out of when my children were born, and at bedtime we would go back to those great Sunday school stories, and as I revisited them and telling them to my own children, I came away feeling like, wow, there's a lot more here than I remember from when I was in Sunday school. There are a lot of interesting details and theological depth to it all, And so I really enjoy going back to these stories. Daniel in the lion's den is just one of those that even people in the culture understand the reference. But there's a lot more to it than I think most of us uh, see and understand. So I wanted to go back and visit this story. This is not part of a larger series. This is just kind of a let's just have fun in Daniel in the lion's den kind of morning. And then next week we'll be diving back into the life of David, which is also fun. I'm not saying it's not fun. But let's pick it up here. Let's put Daniel 6, which is where we find the story of Daniel in the lion's den, in in some context. In 605 BC, this is before the, the events of Daniel chapter 6, obviously, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon conquers the southern kingdom of Judah. He had a policy of removing the best and brightest of the country. When he would take over a country and sack the cities and everything, he would take the best and the brightest... And he would bring them back to Babylon, both to enrich his own empire and also to deprive the conquered territories of potential leaders for a rebellion to form around. Cultural leaders, thought leaders, the sons of nobility, aristocracy. He just wanted to have this great brain drain from all the countries that he conquered. He would leave them impoverished for good people, and he would enrich his own kingdom with their minds. And Daniel is one of those who was forcibly removed to Babylon, where he lived out the rest of his life as a prisoner in exile among a pagan people. Much of the book of Daniel chronicles for us the effort of Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we remember them from the fiery furnace, to remain faithful to their God while living and working amidst a culture that does not share their value or their worldview. Does any of that sound familiar to you? It should. The story of Daniel and his friends is very much the story of Christians living in the midst of our culture today. I think previous generations were tempted to think of America as kind of an Israel. But now Christians are born into a culture where they much more think of themselves as being born in Babylon. And we're living in the midst of a culture that looks more like Daniel and his friends than anything else in the Bible. Daniel is helped by God, mightily helped, so that he finds favor at court and he rises within the administration of the empire. And then in 539 BC, years after Daniel was taken into captivity, the Babylonian empire was itself conquered by the Medo-Persian empire, and there's a new boss in town. His name is Cyrus the Great. By this time, Daniel would have most likely been in his 80s. I don't know why, but when I was in Sunday school, I pictured Daniel a much younger man. But when the story of Daniel in the lion's den takes place, he's probably nearing the end of his life, perhaps. He's an older man. And although a high-ranking official in the previous regime, Daniel once again finds favor within the new order and is once again promoted. And that's remarkable. I would think if a new, like when we have a new president, the first thing he does is fire all the cabinet from the previous administration. He wants his own people in there. But Daniel somehow survives the purge. And not only that, but he's promoted within the new empire. And this is where we pick up the story in Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. And here's what we'll do. We'll just sort of read a little bit, and then I'll stop and make some observations, and that's how we'll work our way through the chapter this morning. Verse 1, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might not suffer loss. So here in this opening verse' we're, opening verses, we're really given the reason for why the new emperor, the new king, is reorganizing the government. It says so that the king might suffer no loss. And you can imagine this vast empire stretching from India to North Africa, millions of souls, in a day before the internet, or good record-keeping, a lot of money just kind of went missing, <laughs> right? There's a lot of dodgy reports getting turned in and things are not quite right. A lot of bribes. And reading between the lines here, there is this great concern on the part of the king that there is just a culture of corruption and graft and bribery. And this is just the culture among the ruling elite in the kingdom. And so he decides, I'm going to reorganize the whole thing. I'm going to make everybody accountable to somebody else. Somebody's going to be looking over your shoulder. And on top of the heap are these three guys, of whom Daniel is one. Daniel is the one you have to report. The whole third of the kingdom has to report to Daniel. It's a big job. And then verse 3, we read this. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So here among these three high ranking guys in the kingdom Daniel has so distinguished himself that the king is now planning to even add another layer to his government these three guys are going to have to report to Daniel and I'm going to make he's so good I'm going to make him in charge of the whole shooting he kind of would become like a prime minister in effect And so when we couple a couple things together here, the concern on the king's mind was the fear that through corruption and dishonesty and greed, his kingdom would suffer loss. His treasuries would suffer, as it were. So when we read that Daniel was found to have, quote, an excellent spirit in him, and that he became distinguished above all the others, here's what we are supposed to conclude about Daniel. In a society where positions of power were routinely abused for personal gain, Daniel stood out for his honesty. He didn't take bribes. He didn't do favors for his friends. He didn't pervert justice or take what wasn't his. He gave an honest report and an honest accounting to the king, perhaps even when it didn't look good for him. In our own culture, in America, we would call him a straight arrow, or a real boy scout, but in every culture and in every age, he was a very rare sort of man. So the king sought to promote him, and at this point, Daniel has already been placed in charge of a third of the empire. But now the king wants to put him over the whole shootin' works. Verse four. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel, unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever! All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed. Who, who isn't in agreement with this? <laughs> His number one right-hand man. That the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions, Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. We ran into this peculiarity of Persian law in our study of Esther. You might remember, it was a long time ago, but in in their system of laws, when the king committed something to writing and put his name on it, it was irreversible. In fact, Herodotus, the great historian, the ancient historian, wrote of a time when a man had been found guilty of murder, the king had signed his death warrant, and then information had come to light that completely cleared and exonerated the man. But because he had been sentenced to death in writing by the king, they went through with the execution. It was irreversible. This was a hard and fast law with the Persians. And at the base of it all was a, a, an attempt by the king to present himself as godlike in his wisdom and in his judgments. The fact that the king could reverse an earlier decision, in other words, say I was wrong, was unthinkable in that culture. But the first thing I want us to see in these verses is that I don't think the king for even one minute thought he was actually passing a law. I mean, not in the sense of stop signs and speed limits and don't steal from the corner store, that kind of law. Consider how ridiculous this law would be if it was actually applied. The law is that no request could be made to anyone other than the king, either God or man, for 30 days. Imagine what would happen if that crazy law was actually enforced across the broad width of the empire. No request or petition could be made to anyone other than the king. No child could ask for a glass of water. No husband could be asked to take out the trash. No craftsperson could be asked to do a job. No co-worker could be asked for help in completing a task. Nobody could be asked anything except the king for 30 days. Sounds delightful, (laughs) right? This law was so general in its wording that I think the king never really thought he was signing a serious law. I think he thought this was just an over-the-top, hyperbolic way for his adoring subjects to tell him how central he was to their lives, how godlike he was in his centrality to the life of the kingdom. This is just their colorful, over the top way of saying, You are the sun around which we all orbit. And the way the king chose to receive this praise was by saying, Yes, let's codify my centrality to all your lives and to the life of this great kingdom. Let's say that I am like a god to all of you, and let's put it into law. But I don't think he ever thought this was going to be an actual law that people would actually abide by for a whole month in the kingdom's life. However, rather than viewing him as godlike, these men who had drawn before his throne were actually viewing him as a dupe, a pawn in their own schemes. They had worded this law with real teeth when it came to a punishment. And they had authored it in such a general way because if they had tailored it in a more specific way to target Daniel, then the king may have smelled a trap and put the kibosh on the whole thing. Just imagine if these ambitious, greedy schemers had come before the king and said, King, we want to pass a law that says if any Jew prays to his God for 30 days, then he would have been like, oh, wait a minute, that's Daniel. These guys are just gunning for the top guy. They just want his job. So they word this in such a wide, general way. It could apply to anybody. But the whole thing is designed just to trip up and catch one man, Daniel. Verse 4 says that before going to these extremes, these other officials had tried to dig up some dirt on Daniel, but it says that in the final analysis, no error or fault was found in him. This is a very human moment in the account, I think. I think there's more going on here than just Daniel's political opponents trying to build an oppo file on him. I think their quest to find fault with Daniel was in part a quest to bring relief to their own stricken consciences. Vance Havner once said, when the Lord's white sheep become dirty gray, all black sheep feel more comfortable. Think how relieved these guys would have felt if they had found that Daniel was really no better than them after all. He also, he just does a better job hiding it, but he's every bit as low down and dirty as we are. These men, of course, were seeking to murder Daniel. And as far as their mirrors go, motives go, they mirror very closely the motives of the first human murderer, Cain. In 1 John 3, 12 through 13, we read about Cain's motives for murdering his brother Abel. You might remember the story from the Old Testament. Cain is the very first murder recorded in the Bible. He murders his brother. And in 1 John 3, it says this, We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. So here we come to this place. These guys are looking for dirt on Daniel. Yes, one, to bring a charge against him. But I think also because how much better would they feel if Daniel really wasn't that good after all? And then they do find that he's righteous, their solution is to just get rid of the source of what's making them uncomfortable. Let's just murder him. And this, by the way, is the same motive that Cain had when he killed Abel. It says here in the Bible, why did he kill him? Because his deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. You see, Daniel is like a living indictment of them. He's a living reminder of their many failings, their shady dealings. But why do I feel so confident in saying that these men hated Daniel? I mean, couldn't it just be that they were scheming and power-hungry, and Daniel was in the way of their ambitions? Maybe this wasn't personal for them. Maybe it was just business. I don't think so, and here's why. Verses 6 through 8 tell us that it was these men who authored the law, and they authored it to just catch one person, Daniel. And they also authored the punishment for breaking the law. And what did they propose to the king for the way this 80-year-old noble official would die? Thrown into a pit of lions. (laughs) Wow. Can you imagine hating somebody so much that you would want them to die that way? That's awful. Truly. And here's why. Every time Daniel refused a bribe, they were reminded of all the bribes they had taken. Every time Daniel brought a report that was honest, straightforward, and true, they were reminded of all the books they had cooked. Daniel really was, by living righteously, like a living accusation, and they hated him for it. Sometimes the only way to be at peace with those in the world is to be no better than them. And fellow Christian, you need to see this and understand it. (laughs) Because if we are going to live righteously, we're not out trying to make people feel bad. But if you follow Christ with sincerity, if you love righteousness, if you're strict in goodness, some people are going to hate you for it. This is why in 1 Peter it says, Do not be surprised, brother, that the world hates you after explaining why Cain killed Abel. Cain killed Abel because Abel's deeds were righteous and his own were evil. So, to really, in a strong, strict way, embrace goodness, righteousness, some people will hate that. Or rather, hate Jesus in you, perhaps might be a better way to put that. Then we come to verse 10. Verse 10 is one of those most well traveled verses in the Bible. I think I could probably spend a month of Sundays in verse 10. We're going to blow through just a couple things here. Let me read the verse, and then I want to point out five things that characterize Daniel's worship and prayer that, that should inspire us as worshipers of God in these days in which we live. But here's verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. There is a lot in this verse. But something that's interesting to me is that throughout this story, Daniel's exceptional qualities, which distinguished him, were linked in the mind of the king and his enemies to his unique relationship with God. In verse 5, the officials reasoned, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. And in verse 16, which we'll get to in a minute, the king will say to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. So when people looked at Daniel's life from the outside, what they saw was a guy whose life absolutely orbited the son of his God. (laughs) God was the center of his life. God is what governed and animated him. His enemies and those who admired him, they all saw that his excellent spirit that was in him, the unique thing that set him apart from others, was that he was utterly devoted to the law of his God. He loved his God, and he lived it in a cheerful, full-hearted kind of a way. And that raises us a question as we work our way through this story. And it's a challenging question to me. What do my What do people who see my life see in Josh Tate? What do our co-workers and neighbors see when they look at us? Do they see an excellent spirit? Are they quick to link that to our relationship to our God? Well, let's look here very closely at some things that characterized Daniel's worship. One is this, Daniel feared God, not man. Think about it. All Daniel had to do to avoid being caught was to pray somewhere other than he typically did. He had a house. He prayed typically in front of the open window facing Jerusalem. But all he had to do was go into the interior of his home and pray, and nobody would have ever been the wiser. Or just close the curtains, for goodness sakes. That's all he had to do. And they would have had nothing But he does not deviate from his normal patterns of worship, because to do so would have been to show greater deference to man than to his God. And he doesn't do it. This would have been not only cowardly, but it really would have been putting men over God. And he doesn't fear man more than God, he fears God. And so he just continues on worshiping as he had done previously. I'm reminded, I read an article this week about Christians in the Chinese city of Wuhan, which is kind of ground zero for the outbreak of the coronavirus. And the church there is very courageous. When everybody else is kind of quarantined in their homes, people aren't out and about. The church is. The church is out handing out respirator masks and sharing the gospel, sharing the good news that you don't have to live in lifelong slavery to the fear of death. One of the pastors in China quoted that verse out of Hebrews that says that very thing. They're proclaiming the gospel boldly. And the pastors in that city are saying that God has given us the coronavirus to establish the church in this city in an enduring way. That's an amazing thing. That says very publicly we're not afraid of anything more. We, what, we, are, we just are going to worship, and we're not going to be governed by fear. And this is an amazing thing to see in Daniel. Another thing that we need to see here is that Daniel's worship put on display the surpassing worth of God. Uh, this isn't a, a word from the Greek or the original language in the Bible, but in our own English word, worship is what we call what we do on mornings like this, or hopefully just in life in general. And in English, we have that suffix tagged on to the end of a lot of our words, ship. So friendship, craftsmanship, leadership, worship. And that comes from the old English word ship. Nobody here from Old England? Did I even get that wrong? Hopefully I pronounced it correctly. Ship. And what that means, we actually get our modern English word shape from it. It means that when something invisible takes a solid shape or form, we call it that thing. So you might say somebody is a craftsman, And by that, we mean they have certain invisible things. There's training, there's know-how, there's experience. But then it takes the solid shape of a podium that is excellent. (laughs) And we say, that's craftsmanship. That is the shape that all of his expertise and knowledge and training has taken. It is craftsmanship. And so when we come to the word worship in English... In our English language, what is being communicated there in Old English, if you go back and read Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, the word is actually worth-ship. What is being said here is that you are communicating the worth of something when you worship. That when we come to God and we worship Him, we are in some way proclaiming His worth to us. And what Daniel is doing in this moment is profound for us as followers of God, as we understand worship. What is he saying in this moment? Knowing what the law is, knowing that he is publicly disobeying it, perhaps even knowing that he's being conspired against, he is saying, God, you are greater to me than that position that I was gonna have. You are greater to me than the paycheck that was gonna go with it. You're greater to me than the power You're greater to me than continued life. In this moment, he is powerfully proclaiming God's worth, that God is even worth more to him than continued days under the sun. If I had to choose between life and worship, I would say, worship, God, you're of greater value to me than tomorrow. This is an amazing thing he is doing. Another thing to see here in number three, so we've had... Daniel feared God, not man. Number two is Daniel is displaying the surpassing worth of God in his worship. And number three, Daniel is worshiping as a foreigner in the land. It says that he opens the windows toward Jerusalem. And by this, we are told that he is praying towards the temple or, in his mind, towards God himself. He is thinking of himself as an exile, a sojourner, a a pilgrim in the land. And very often in the Bible, we are called as followers of God today to think of ourselves in much the same terms, that this is not our home, that we're not invested here, that we're living for another kingdom, another place, another future. And Daniel is embracing that same ethos here in the city, in the the empire back then. Number four, Daniel's worship was habitual. Habitual. It says he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So here, Daniel is a a creature of habit. He's made worship his habit in life. We incidentally see this in the life of Jesus as well. It says in Luke that when he went into one town, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day as was his habit. And I think that just whenever we see somebody who is great in the faith, it is built on habitual exercise of these kinds of spiritual disciplines. Are we habitually in God's Word? Are we habitually in prayer? Do we habitually come among God's people in worship? All these things amount to a life of worship. And then number five, Daniel's worship was marked by a spirit of thanksgiving. This is perhaps one of the most bewildering parts of this verse, is it says at the tail end of verse 10 that as he began to pray, he gave thanks. (laughs) And I wonder what he gave thanks for. I wish the prayer was actually recorded in Scripture, and it's not. But here he's read a law that says if he prays, he's going to be killed, And he goes to his prayer, he goes up to his apartment, he gets down, as he always had, in front of the open window, and he opens his mouth and he thanks God. I wonder what for. Well, we don't know his words, we don't know exactly what he thanked God for, but we're given perhaps a clue in 1 Peter 4, where it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I think he's just thankful to be with God. You know, it's a bit like uh, in some of these dark, rustic winter days where the clouds come in and it just starts dropping snow like to beat the band. And you know it's gonna snow a lot when the flakes are really small and they're just coming down persistently and it's snowing and blowing outside. And inside your house, it just feels so warm and cozy, right? The harder it storms outside, the cozier it feels within. And I think in this moment, he is brought into just great joyous unity with his God because the storms have picked up outside, but he's thankful that he's in there safe and close with God that he has things that are better than pleasing King Darius. He's happy to be lumped in with God for good or or for pain. So I I wish we had time. We could probably flesh out each of those five points and spend a Sunday on each. But we're going to move on. We come now to verse 11. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. So in other words, they've said, he always prays at this time before the window. We'll just show up together, we'll all witness it, and then we can go to the king. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, he pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. I don't know how these guys thought this was going to work. Like at this point, the king knows he's been played. And he's much distressed. And he knows that this thing that he, I don't think he ever thought for a minute was a real law has now been used just to capture Daniel, for, to further these guys' ambitions. This is about the dumbest play these guys could have made. Because even if it works and they remove Daniel, how do they think they're going to get away with this without losing their own heads? But isn't it striking how everyone is busy in these verses except Daniel? The officials are scheming and working They're running around over town. They're meeting up. They're going to the king. They're talking. The king, who knows he's been played, is searching for some kind of loophole. He sets his mind on trying to set David. This whole thing, everybody's working feverishly except who? Daniel. (laughs) Daniel is silent. And you'll remember that Jesus was also silent before his accusers. Mark 15, 5 and Luke 23, 9 tell us that Jesus was silent before Pilate and also before Herod. And remember how Pilate, finding no fault in Jesus, sought to release him just as Darius is trying to find some way to save Daniel. And for the same reason, because he's innocent, he finds no fault in the man. But those who hated Jesus and those who hated Daniel called all the more for his death King, you signed the injunction. Same spirit as crucify him. Many of the great Old Testament stories serve to foreshadow the coming work of Jesus. One of the greatest joys we can find in meditating on these great old stories of the faith is finding Jesus in them. There are more than just a few parallels between the story of Daniel and the lion's den and the death and resurrection of Jesus. Verse 16. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lord's, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Do you remember how Jesus was placed in a tomb and a stone rolled across its entrance? And Matthew 27 tells us that the tomb was sealed and made secure. Verse 18, Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No, diver- no diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. And we remember how Jesus' friends mourned following his death. And then, verse 19, At break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And we're reminded of how Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early in the morning when it was still dark, and how John and Peter came running to the tomb. In verse 20, As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you served continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me. Because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Daniel gives the reason why he believes he has not been killed by the lions during the night. He says, I was found blameless, he was innocent of wrongdoing. And this is the same reason why death could not hold our Lord in the grave. He was innocent and without sin. Acts 2.24 says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, of course, we don't want to take this comparison too far. Daniel, in the final analysis, was a sinner just like you and me. In fact, in Daniel chapter 9, which comes after this account, you can read it if you'd like, Daniel repeatedly confesses that he is a sinner to God. He's not without sin in the perfect way that Jesus was, and I'm not making that claim. I'm just saying that his claim of innocence in this matter represents the perfect innocence of Jesus when he was raised from the dead. And then we come to verses 23 through 24. Remember how I just said a moment ago that how did these guys think they were going to get away with it? Well, of course, they were never going to get away with it. Verse 23, Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded that those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Difficult verses to ponder. But for us, as we meditate on these passages, I think this sort of stands for me as a symbol of the end of the wicked. There is one out there who has laid a trap for God's anointed and for God's people. He has conspired. He has brought false accusations. And Revelations 20 says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever. In Revelations 20:15, Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. These ones who had sought the life of Daniel ended up being thrown into the same punishment that they had conspired for Daniel to suffer. And all those who followed them, by the way. This is the lesson. It's difficult for us to hear that the families of these men were also thrown into the lion's den. But it is true that anyone who follows the wicked one, anyone who... When Jesus turns to the Pharisees and says, your father is, is, is the devil... He said, you're following him as your dad. And you're going to suffer the same fate as him. And this is true in this sense, too, for all those who follow after Satan are going to suffer the same fate as Satan. What this is describing here at the tail end of Daniel, if, if this illustrative prefiguring sketch is, is, is symbolically true, is that this is the final end of the wicked and all of those who follow the evil one. And then we come to verse 25 and on. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, he who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. The final words that I think we should be left with in this account are these from the mouth of King Darius. He delivers and rescues. The story of Daniel and the lion's den is really the story of the whole Bible. It's the story of a God who is mighty to save. This is the greatest comparison that can be found between the story of Daniel and that of Jesus. Both tell the story of God's faithfulness to rescue and save his people whom he loves. Just like Daniel, we have also been miraculously saved. We live and walk in the great truth that Jesus' innocence has been credited to us because he bore our sin publicly on the cross. And we also know that there is a coming day when all of those who have not put their trust in Jesus will be destroyed, finally, utterly. We still live in the days of grace, which is why we take the gospel so seriously. Our call to go proclaim that anybody who would have it can receive free pardon for their sins. But Colossians 1 13 through 14 says this He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And as Darius said, His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. Let's pray. Well, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we've been able to spend in the midst of your word together this morning. Thank you for the story of Daniel. This uh, man who proclaimed with his very life that there are things better than life, there are things worse than dying. Father, I thank you for the obvious worth and excellence that his display of faith put in front of us. And Father, I pray, Lord, that we would live in such a way that others would see that you are our great treasure. Father, we do not delight in thinking of anyone being destroyed or punished. But Father, we do know and we take very seriously and soberly what the Bible says, that there is a coming day. We thank you for being a God of grace and mercy. We thank you for the calling you have put on us as a church to go and proclaim peace to those who are far off and to give life to those who are living in the midst of death. But Father, we do know that there is a coming day where those who are opposed to you will be destroyed. And that in an A continuing existence in eternity is the sole portion of the redeemed. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to proclaim the gospel boldly. God, as we do, I pray that those who hear it would turn towards you and and receive the free gift of salvation. Father, I pray that we, like Daniel, would not fear man but that man would see that we, our hearts, live in devotion to another, and that's you. Father, I pray that we would put on display the surpassing worth of who you are. Father, I pray that we would live as pilgrims and sojourners in this life. Father, I pray that in all of it, God, you would help us to live for you. And Father, I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.